0: this podcast is part of the batman universe podcast network hosted by the batmanuniverse.net check out everything related to batman and the entire bat family at the batmanuniverse.net including news and original content related to comics movies television merchandise video games and more also check out some of the other unique podcasts that tbu has to offer Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. the mites, Lane here. Welcome to episode 11 of Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose, where the only pictures are those formed in the imagination. Today we're discussing book two, part two, and it feels like it's been ages since I recorded Batman Books. I apologize I didn't get an episode out a couple of weeks ago, but I got to spend a little time in Tennessee with one of my best friends in the world, and I got to meet her boyfriend, so hello Anne and Ken. I also had some other projects I had to get to, but it feels good to be back. I have a quick note from John of the Married with Comics podcast with John and Maggie about the book that we're reading right now, which is Batman, The Ultimate Evil. He says, The Ultimate Evil is really good. I am glad your podcast made me finally get around to reading it. Right? I'm only four chapters in so far, but I really like it. I feel like it's going to raise a pretty high bar for the other Batman books that we'll be covering in this podcast. I have a few other shout outs from some folks on Twitter. Paxton from the I Read Movies podcast. I recommend his podcast. He's got some great episodes on classic movie novelizations. Classic as in from my childhood, not so much uh, the Cary Grant classic. Heard from Chris from the BatmanUniverse.net. He does some great work on Bat Books for Beginners, Batgirl to Oracle, along with Stella, the Professor Frenzy podcast, and he's just an all around great guy. Green Lantern HG retweeted my podcast. Thank you, Green Lantern. Professor Frenzy, hello. He is Chris's partner in crime and another great guy. Sean Robert, hello. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Looks like he does some work on brandedinthe80s.com, movienovelizations.com, hello, and is a co-host of the Cult Film Club. So, hmm, sounds like he's got some stuff I need to check out as well. So, hello everyone, thank you for the interaction. And a reminder, you can contact me at darknightprose at gmail.com, or as these fine folks did, over on Twitter at BatmanBooks underscore DKP. I would love to hear from you. Without further ado, let's start chapter three, which is on page 17 of my copy. Chapter three, scene one. Later that night, a big gray sedan careened around a downtown corner, a squad car in hot pursuit. The driver of the sedan was an expert a top professional whose racing career had been cut short when he was convicted of deliberately running over a member of a rival pit crew during the Gotham Grand Prix. Now the driver made his living moving contraband from one city to another. In the trunk of the sedan was a full set of plates to print counterfeit $20 bills. Most of the time, the driver never had to display his skills. Usually he could manage the delivery without a problem. Somebody must have tipped off the cops, he thought. Not that it will do them any good. In the driver's skilled hands, the gray sedan is a precision instrument. It looks just like a regular car on the outside, but it has the power of a race car. Conventional police cars are no match. An unmarked police car with two detectives in the front seats joins the chase, but the driver simply smiles and takes the next corner in a four-wheel drift. One squad car crashes into a parked delivery van. The sedan executes a perfect J-turn, and the unmarked car shoots past him helplessly. The driver turns into an alley going 70 miles per hour, with only a couple of inches clearance on either side. Within ten minutes, the driver approaches the edge of the warehouse district. He checks his rearview mirror, not expecting to see anybody there. He sees no one. But does he hear something? No, it's too high-pitched to be a car engine. Unless... Damn, the driver hisses, and he stomps on the gas pedal. The previously relaxed driver is now hunched tensely over the steering wheel. If he goes to prison one more time, they'll throw away the key. His last day at Hellgate Prison was unpleasant, and he's not going back quietly. The driver glances in the mirror, still dark, but then he sees a tiny red dot, a warning that the Batmobile is in pursuit, a warning to pull over and surrender. Fat chance, the driver mutters. Whoever he is, he's still human, and if he's human, I can outdrive him. Ahead, he sees a long S-curve. He leaves room for the Batmobile to pull alongside, and it does. The driver waits for the right time, then mashes the brake pedal at the same time he jerks the wheel to the left. The sedan's rear end comes around like a steel whip, but the Batmobile isn't there. With nothing to slam into, the sedan continues its path and slides off the curve and into the black water below. My notes? I ain't gonna lie, I love me a good car chase. I enjoyed the one in book one, the novelization of the 1989 Batman, and I really enjoyed this one. My only complaint is I wish it had lasted longer, but I guess the best thing to do is to keep your audience wanting more. I noticed the driver refers to the prison as Hellgate Prison. I'm curious if that's a nickname for Blackgate Prison, or if that's the name that Andrew Vax has given Blackgate Prison for his Batman story, which I'm not really sure why he would and I don't see a prison being called Hellgate Prison, so my guess is that it's a nickname. Since we don't really know much more about the driver, there's not a lot I can really comment on about him. Chapter 3, Scene 2. Hmm, this scene is short and (laughs) dialogue-heavy. I smell something cooking. Could it be... Rest in peace, theater is proud to present that time to rescue squad divers wonder what's up with batman funny thing he didn't hang around what are you talking about oh yeah i forgot you're new here i've been out on plenty of these every once in a while some crook thinks he can take on the batmobile and he ends up in the drink but every other time the batman hangs around sort of just to make sure the guy's okay i guess well, we fished him out, didn't we? Sure, I mean, he wasn't really in that much trouble, not with the Batman calling us in even before the crash. But, I don't know, it seems different this time. He didn't even look back. I love the idea of cleanup crews that have to follow in Batman's wake. It's a side of the Cape Crusader that we don't often see. In fact, the one that springs to mind is from the '66 TV show where there's a van marked as the Batmobile Parachute Pickup Service comes in. Of course, there are people like construction workers who have to repair or rebuild things lost in collateral damage, and police or paramedics who take care of the crooks, but rescue divers? I'd never thought about these guys. Or what about tow truck drivers or the people who sweep glass and other debris off the streets when there's been a wreck? Can you imagine being one of these people and what sort of conversations might come up about Batman? Would they get tired of his shenanigans? Would they applaud him for their job security? This little scene probably technically doesn't add much. The characters are minor enough that they warrant almost no description, other than their job titles, that is. We don't learn anything about the driver. And as far as we know, it doesn't really bring anything vital to the story. But that being said, I still love it. We get that look at just a couple of regular people whose careers mean that they have occasional contact with Batman. We learn that Batman, indeed, does look after the lives of the criminals. He usually waits around to make sure they're able to exit the vehicle. And while he didn't do that this time, he still calls in the rescue squad before the crash even happened. And who knows, Batman could have lingered at least until the squad was in sight. So why didn't he wait? This gives the idea that he is preoccupied or angered by something, and with Bruce Wayne's recent conversation with Deborah Kane and the plight of children in Gotham, we can perhaps connect that with Batman's current odd behavior. Chapter 3, Scene 3 Still later that night, a pair of nurses were walking from the hospital exit to the parking lot. They had just finished a double shift, happy to be done, but almost too tired to care. They were practically to their car when a man wearing a red ski mask blocked their path. Drop your pocketbooks, he commanded, brandishing a machete. The blonde nurse tossed her purse on the ground. Just take it and go away, she said calmly. We don't want any trouble. The robber bends to pick up the purse, but when he does, the brunette nurse kicks at his head. The robber jumps back just in time to avoid the kick, and the nurse falls to the ground. The robber snarls. You shouldn't have tried that. Now it's going to cost you more than money. He raises the machete. The blonde nurse screams. The robber hesitates long enough for the brunette nurse to scramble to her feet. She tells the blonde nurse, Bonnie, to spread out that he can't take them both at once. The robber says with a sneer, Tough broads, aren't you? Too bad nobody could hear you scream way out here. He watches their faces for signs of fear, but the nurses instead are staring at something behind him. The robber asks if they expect him to fall for that old, but he gets no further. The snap of his arm is immediately followed by his shriek of pain. He falls to the ground. His right arm dangles limply, and his face is white with pain. Bonnie says, Compound fracture. I'll stay here to watch him. You go get security. The brunette starts to protest, but Bonnie continues. Go ahead. I'll be fine. This one isn't going to give anyone any trouble. Not for a long time. Later, the nurses tell their story to a detective. Yes, they're sure that it was Batman. They both saw him. The detective says, You're saying that the Batman, the Batman, snapped this guy's arm like a twig and just took off? For the third time, the nurses say, yes. Okay, ladies, okay. I'm not saying you didn't see what you saw. It just don't sound like the Batman, that's all. My notes? Even though I've had a broken bone, uh, two of them actually, both in my ankle at the same time, Almost nothing makes me squirm in my seat more than seeing someone's bone break on video. Thankfully, this is Batman books, The Dark Knight, in Prose, where the only pictures are those formed in the imagination. And for this scene, I kept my imagination on low res. The nurses, I like them. On one hand, props to them for trying to fight back, but in all seriousness, no material item is worth your life. Fighting back is a last resort type of thing when a mugger has a weapon and is confrontational. Be careful out there. Keep your head on a swivel. Keep in mind what can be replaced and what can't. Batman is scary when he's taking out his frustration. Now, oh, who am I kidding? He's always scary. Fun fact for chapter three: a J turn is also called a moonshiner's turn from the evasive driving tactics used by bootleggers. It is also called a reverse 180. A Rockford Turn, or simply a Rockford, popularized by the TV show The Rockford Files. Alright, let's take a promo break, and then we'll come back for Chapter 4. Stay tuned! <laughs> stuff we review, a little old, a lot of new, come and join in all the fun, help clean up when we're done. Come party with the professor, come party with the professor, Professor Frenzy Show, Professor Frenzy Show, Professor Frenzy Show. Professor Frenzy Show the professor frenzy show if you like indie comics and also like podcasts please try the professor frenzy show find the show in itunes search and facebook episodes tweeted out on at professor frenzy on twitter thank you Hi, my name is Dr. Andrea Litamendi, clinical psychologist. And I'm Brian Ward, nerd. And we want to invite you to listen to our new podcast, The Arkham Sessions. It's a podcast dedicated to the fun. And geeky. Analysis of Batman the Animated Series, episode by episode. We pay tribute to the writers and the stories of the animated series. While also exploring the very real psychology behind Gotham's rogues. And maybe even its heroes. All of this and more each week on the Arkham Sessions at underthemaskonline.com. Welcome back, folks. Let's dive into Chapter 4. In my copy, Chapter 4 starts on page 23. Chapter 4, Scene 1. This is a short one. For those of you who don't know the drill, when a scene is particularly short, I just read the whole thing instead of simply a sample of it. It's not enough, he said to himself. Over and over again, like a mantra. It's not enough, the Batman said. It's not enough, his alter ego echoed. Sir? Alfred asked, raising an eyebrow. Huh? Bruce Wayne replied, as though awakening from a deep sleep. Sorry, Alfred. I must have been daydreaming. With all respect, Master Bruce, I don't think so. You have been repeating the same thing over and over again for some time now. You keep saying it's not enough. Are you... I'm fine, Alfred. I just think it's time to make some decisions. May I be of help, sir? I don't think so, old friend. On the other hand, I guess you've already been of help. Of great help, in fact. Do you remember when I was a boy, how you cautioned me against trying to solve a problem without adequate data? Of course, Master Bruce. But I don't see how... I'm going out, Alfred. I'm going out to gather the data I need. Then you'll be needing the Batmobile, sir. No, Alfred. This is one investigation where I can learn more as... As yourself, sir. I'm not sure, Bruce replied. A note of ephemeral sadness running like a dark thread through his voice. My notes? First of all, I found a typo. (laughs) The second paragraph of page 23, where uh, where it starts with Sir, my copy has that being said by Albert, not Alfred. Hmm. I almost read that too when I was reading it aloud. I kind of stumbled over it a bit. For this part, I could really picture Michael Keaton here as Batman, well, as Bruce Wayne technically, muttering to himself, lost in his thoughts. You know the scene I'm thinking of. Keaton as Bruce Wayne in the Batcave, furrowed brow glasses, crazy Michael Keaton hair, black turtleneck. And it's kind of funny, I just got a message from the Married With Comics with John and Maggie. It says, Reading The Ultimate Evil along with you brought back an odd memory. It probably comes from my having read the novelization for Batman 89 before seeing the movie, but my internal image and voice of Batman for that book were way different from the way that he actually appears. It's kind of a weird hodgepodge of Adam West and Michael Keaton in Look and Delivery. When I read the Future Adventures short stories, it was the same image. And now, here it is back again. I think my mental image and voice of Batman, except really for this scene where for some reason Michael, well, not for some reason, Michael Keaton just kind of plays the slightly unhinged Bruce Wayne very well. But anyway... My usual mental image and mental voice of Batman runs closer along the line of the Arkham games, not because I came across those in early childhood, of course. In fact, I only started playing them a few years ago, but I guess it seemed to match more closely in my head than what live-action actors could do. The animated series, that was definitely the voice of Batman for me, but the look uh, I wanted something more realistic, and that's where the Arkham games really delivered for me. As for my mental Batman voice, I think kind of a toss up between Kevin Conroy and Roger Craig Smith, though I think Roger Craig Smith just ekes out Kevin Conroy. And I can't find it again, but a few months ago I came across a discussion on a forum somewhere about the voices of Batman with Kevin Conroy and Roger Craig Smith being the clear favorites. And one person said that, kind of like what I said, that they love Kevin Conroy, but Roger Craig Smith just has just like a touch more darkness in his voice, a touch more menace. And the way this person put it was, <laughs> if they came across Roger Craig Smith speaking with that voice in an alley somewhere, he would hand over his wallet without him, having asked for it, and uh, his voice in some of the the Arkham games, yeah, just nails it very menacing, very dark, kind of perfect for Batman, really now, tomorrow, if asked this question again, I might choose Kevin Conroy, but anyway, back to the book. I hope Bruce doesn't fall into these fits of repetitive muttering too often. We know he's obsessed, but if he's not careful, Alfred or Albert one of the two, might call the guys in white suits to come take Bruce to Arkham Asylum. Uh, My next point, in the 1989 Batman, we got a little bit of the relationship with Alfred and Batman, though it was usually in the third person. For instance, when Bruce tells Vicky that he'd not be able to find his socks without Alfred. We got a little bit more of that in the movie when they added the scene of Bruce and Vicky joining Alfred in the kitchen for their dinner. And Alfred fondly tells a story from Bruce's childhood. That part utterly charmed me, by the way. I probably leaned forward with my chin on my hands with a big sappy grin on my face. It was so adorable. But here in this book, we have Bruce calling Alfred old friend. And I gotta say, it gives me the warm fuzzies. Chapter 4, Scene 2. It's another short one. You're serious, Deborah Kane asked into the phone. You really want to go on rounds with me? That's exactly what I want, Bruce Wayne said. If you don't believe it would hinder. It's not that, Deborah Kane replied. I'm just surprised. Nobody ever asked me to do that before. I'm not even sure it's okay. I mean, the agency might not want other people along. You know, confidentiality and all that. Don't worry, Bruce Wayne assured her. I'll make sure you have all the necessary permissions in your hand before tomorrow night. How's that? I'll look forward to seeing you, Mr. Wayne, Deborah Kane said. Tomorrow night, then? Around six? I'll be there, Bruce Wayne promised. Man, I wish I had the Kevin Conroy or Roger Craig Smith Bruce Wayne voice. (sighs) Anyway, my notes. If I were a billionaire philanthropist, I'd get to ride around with a social worker, too. Though in all seriousness, I'm glad there's some mention of confidentiality and permissions. Otherwise, I'd question this scene's authenticity. But hey, Andrew Vax knows a hell of a lot more about legalities and social issues than I do. So, as my friend Anne would say, I'll allow it. Chapter 4, Scene 3, One More Short One Why would Bruce Wayne want to make the rounds with some social worker? The mayor asked, looking across his wide oak desk at Police Commissioner Gordon. "'He says he wants to see where resources are needed,' the commissioner replied. "'And he wants to see for himself. "'Doesn't sound like him, does it? "'I mean, he's kind of a playboy, isn't he? "'Doesn't do much of anything but go to parties?' "'Some of those parties are fundraisers,' the commissioner said pointedly. "'If he wants to do it, that's good enough for me. "'Of course, his lawyers have already prepared a full waiver and release. "'If something happens to him while he's out there, we won't be held responsible.' Well, I suppose it's not inappropriate for a public-spirited individual to see how his tax dollars are spent. I appreciate your cooperation, the commissioner said. And I know Bruce will, too. My notes? Gordon! Hmm, but it's Gordon with no description, so either he needs no description, which is very possible, and, come on, if you're reading a Batman book, you already know what Jim Gordon looks like. Or he's not going to be in this book very much. So we'll find that out sooner or later. And which mayor might this be? Not Mayor Borg, because I think he was created only in the 1989 Batman movie. Anyway, this scene just serves the purpose of giving us a more in-depth look of the legal loopholes that Bruce is jumping through in order to be able to ride along with Deborah Kane. Chapter 4, Scene 4. "'Debra, you'll never believe who's out at the front desk. "'Asking for you,' the chubby, sweet-faced receptionist whispered breathlessly into the phone. "'If it's Bruce Wayne, just send him back, Clarissa.' "'All right, girl. One super-rich hunk coming up.' The receptionist looked up to catch Bruce Wayne's eye. "'You can go right through that door,' she said. "'Follow the blue arrow to room 109, okay?' "'Thank you,' Bruce said. Clarissa's heart melted. She cast her big brown eyes skyward and said, Okay, when's it going to be my turn, huh? Bruce peeks his head into the door to room 109 and sees Deborah on the phone. She waves him in toward an empty chair. She's taking notes, and the questions she's asking include, When did it happen? How do you know? Did she see a doctor? Finally, she's off the phone and she tells Bruce cautiously that she's glad he could come to see where his tax dollars are going. He replies, Would that be so bad? Wouldn't you want tax-paying citizens to have some idea of what they're buying? Deborah tells him that she supposes so, but they don't do charity, and she doesn't want him to confuse child protective services with welfare. Bruce smiles and says, I've learned something already. Deborah doesn't smile back, but her defensiveness softens a little. She says, You understand that there's two parts to my job. I have to investigate new cases, and I have to check on the progress of some older ones. Do you have a preference as to which you'd like to see? Bruce, of course, answers with... Both. My notes? I kind of hope we get to see more of Clarissa. I love that she gets a little bit starstruck-slash-fangirly over Bruce Wayne. I feel ya, girl. As for Deborah Kane, so far the narrative has been blessedly free of the There was something about Bruce Wayne that riddled the novelization of the 89 Batman. For Room 109... I was curious if that number means anything in Batman lore. I did a quick Google search, but nothing popped out. The differentiation between CPS and welfare was a nice touch also. I'd always figured they were under the same umbrella, but I don't know enough about either system. I never thought they were one and the same, though. Chapter 4, Scene 5 The dull gray sedan was undistinguished except for Gotham Social Services stenciled on its front doors. It made its way across town. Deborah Kane at the wheel. "'Have you ever been to the Randall Street Projects?' she asked. "'Not as Bruce Wayne,' the man next to her thought to himself. Aloud, he simply answered, "'I don't believe so.' "'If you'd been there, you'd remember it. It was built in the 60s. Social engineering in the very real sense. The idea was to provide affordable housing for working people.' "'Are you saying that was a bad idea?' "'No. In fact, the idea was great.' But the execution was lacking. The people who designed it had no idea what working people needed, what their children needed. They were so excited about their concepts, she said sarcastically, that they forgot people actually lived in what they built. I still don't understand, he said. Take a look, Debra Kane replied, turning the wheel so the car could enter the parking lot. Bruce Wayne turns his head, but it's the Batman's trained eyes that scan the project. The project is a series of slab-faced brick buildings, 20 stories high. The external stairways incorporate chicken wire to prevent children, drunks, and addicts from falling. The front doors are painted in layers of graffiti, and many of the windows are covered with cardboard. The incinerator's giant smokestack spews black smoke. At length, Bruce says, It looks like a prison. Deborah says, That's what it feels like, too. The pair walk across the parking lot, Deborah ignoring catcalls and wolf whistles. The front door of the building they're heading toward is slightly open. The locks have been smashed off for a long time. The mailboxes inside are equally smashed. The elevator has an out-of-order sign. Deborah says, I wouldn't write it anyway. It's not safe. Bruce asks, Because it might fall? That too. We need 16B. I hope you're in shape. The stairs are filled with garbage. When Bruce asks why they don't throw it in the incinerator, Deborah explains that most of the time it doesn't work. At least they're not throwing the garbage out the window. At the ninth floor, breathing a bit labored, Deborah asks Bruce, Are you alright? I'm sure you're not used to this. Bruce feigns being slightly out of breath, saying that he'll be okay. When they get to the sixteenth floor, Deborah holds up a hand, indicating for Bruce to wait. She says... I have to get my breath back. When you go into one of these places, you can't be out of breath. Because, Bruce asks, because you may end up in a pitched battle. You never know what's behind one of these doors. After a rest, Deborah finds door 16B and knocks sharply. The door is opened as far as the chain allows. Deborah explains to the woman that she's from Child Protective Services, that CPS was notified by a third party, and no, she can't reveal the identity of the person who notified them. From deeper inside the apartment, a loud, aggressive, alcohol-blurred voice shouts, Get away from that door! The man disengages the chain, then pulls the door open. He's a large man, a former athlete gone soft, perhaps, and demands, What the hell do you want? Debra gives the same explanation she gave the woman, adding that CPS is mandated to investigate the reported situation. We need to speak with you and with your children. And what if I say you can't? He sneers, trying to stare Debra down. Debra meets his gaze calmly. Then we'll return with the police. Ten seconds pass. Finally, the man turns away, grumbling. Uh, do what you want. An hour goes by in the apartment. The pretty ten-year-old named Mary Lou is explaining the black eye she has, the black eye that attracted the attention of the school nurse. Mary Lou says, I didn't want him to hit Scotty. Scotty's just a baby. He could be hurt real bad. Deborah asks, Does he hit Scotty a lot? Not a lot, I guess. I don't know. Does he hit Scotty every day? Sometimes, when he cries, or if he spills something, or when he plays too loud, you know. Does Daddy hit anybody else? As if puzzled by a stupid question, Mary Lou replies, He hits everybody. The father appears, asking if Deborah has heard enough, and asking what Mary Lou told her. Deborah replies, We'll discuss that later. The man rounds on the little girl, demanding, What did you say? Answer me! Nothing, Daddy, I the man backhands the little girl, sending her sailing off the bed. Deborah immediately puts herself between the man and Mary Lou. Bruce Wayne seems to materialize at the man's side, putting what looks to Deborah like a comforting hand on the man's neck. We're going to the other room, just to get ourselves calmed down. Isn't that right? The comforting hand isn't so comforting. All the man feels is pain lancing white needles of pain. All he knows is that the pain goes away when he nods his head. Later, in the car, Bruce asks what's going to happen to the family. Deborah explains that they all say the father is only like this when he drinks, but he's been drinking more since he lost his job. It's not as simple as sending the kids to a foster home. The most important thing for Mary Lou is not to be separated from her brother Scotty, and in foster homes, that can't be guaranteed. Plus, neither child wants to leave. They want their daddy to be nicer like he was before he started drinking, but they don't want to leave. I know it looks ugly to you, but it's really a Category 1 case. She goes on to explain that Category 1 essentially means people who are doing inadequate parenting. Sometimes they just don't know how to be a parent, such as a 13-year-old girl who has had a baby. The man they just saw, his real problem is unemployment which is a problem CPS can't fix. Without sarcasm, Bruce asks, What can you fix? Deborah says that they'll file a petition for services for the family. Alcoholism counseling for the father, periodic checks to make sure he's not hitting the kids, family counseling for them all, individual counseling for the children. There's lots of things we can do, but it's never enough. Bruce brings up that he talked to the man in the other room. He explains, He kept saying, They used to respect me. That's what he kept saying over and over. Deborah isn't surprised by this. She says that the man is distraught, that what he's doing is lousy, and he feels lousy about it. She feels bad for him, but she feels worse for the children, and if the situation doesn't improve, for the children's children as well. Bruce asks if that's why she went to the party. Deborah says, I don't know what I was thinking. At first, I thought it would be... I don't know, exciting, maybe. All those rich and famous people. Besides, I heard they had great food at those things. But as soon as I looked around, I just couldn't stand it. All those smug, pompous, self-congratulatory people. As if their money made them important. I knew I didn't belong there. Like I did. Deborah blushes, but meets his gaze. That is what I thought. I still don't know why you went out with me. I mean out on rounds with me, but it's all right if I do it again. If you've got the stomach, I got the time. My notes. Holy f- Oh my goodness, where to start? I'll just go point by point. Number one, I love that Bruce feigns being out of breath. And the Oscar goes to... He's here for the long con, that's for sure. Number two... Uh, The part about Deborah having to catch her breath for the sake of being ready for whatever situation she finds behind the door, that feels like one of those bits of insider information that those of us who aren't in the world of CPS would likely never think of, but when someone like Andrew Vax points it out, it's like, oh yeah, that makes total sense, actually. Number three, when you stop and think that Deborah would normally be alone in these situations, it makes me recall that clip of the interview with Andrew Vax. He mentions social workers having to go alone into unknown situations where even police won't go alone. They don't know what will be behind the door, and in addition to that, they have to assess everyone in the family. Not to mention, they don't get paid enough. I have some friends who are social workers, and the emotional stress and pain they deal with major shout out and mad props to all you social workers out there. Number four, this family. What a mess. It's bad enough when a person physically abuses another adult, though it's almost always another adult who is smaller in size or is otherwise more vulnerable than the abuser, but then you have people who abuse children and animals. What vile, pathetic pieces of excrement these people are. Yes, usually they were abused themselves, and while that is a reason, it is not an excuse Since 2016, the FBI has started keeping track of reports of animal cruelty. This is because animal abuse is a huge red flag for the potential to inflict violence upon humans. This connection to violence toward other humans is probably the only reason the FBI bothers to track animal abusers, but you know what? The reason doesn't matter. Animals finally have more of a voice and some more protection under the law. That went off on a tangent. Anyway, I hope this family doesn't have pets because this man is already a piece of never mind. Never mind. I think Deborah has more sympathy for this guy than I do. Number five. Bruce Wayne's comforting hand on the man's shoulder is great. I love that we see Deborah thinking that it was indeed just a hand to calm the man down but we get the insight that Bruce is locked onto a pressure point of some kind, so all the man feels is white-hot pain. Those pressure points are really handy. In Aikido, we use joint locks more than pressure points, but sometimes a technique employs them both, or sometimes you accidentally find a pressure point and it's a bonus. Number six, I have a feeling Batman is going to have more frustration to work off after this visit with Debra Kane. Enjoy your working limbs while you have them, criminals of Gotham. Fun Fact for Chapter 4 Partly funded by the federal government, Child Protective Services agencies were first established in response to the 1974 CAPTA, or Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, which mandated that all states establish procedures to investigate suspected incidents of child maltreatment. Alright, phew, that chapter was heavy, and it's only chapter 4. Thank you for listening. Next episode will cover chapter 5 and 6. As always, feel free to contact me at darknightprose at gmail.com or Batman Books underscore DKP on Twitter. Until next time, Gothamites, happy reading. Batman is copyrighted to DC Comics and was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger.